If you're a player at the top level where it's incredibly competitive, you got to play in a way that represents who you are because, you know, nobody can do you better. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Competitor podcast. My guest today is Jack Hahn. Jack uh, is a hockey consultant whose uh, work in social media is, is something that I've, I've come across. And, and we've kind of had a a cozy relationship, Jack. I don't know if we've had a, a formal player-coach relationship, but I, I really appreciate your lens and, and your background. We crossed paths around similar time with the Toronto organization, so I, I think that that's a, a point of interest. You started out as a writer for the Montreal Canadiens, then you worked uh, with the McGill women's hockey team, and then eventually getting into scouting development uh, and analytics for the Maple Leafs, ending your career uh, as a Toronto Marlies assistant in, uh, what year was that? Let's see, 2019-2020. Jack, I think where we were talking a little bit off the air prior to starting was a little bit of your familiarity uh, with my game, um, discussing off the cuff some of what we think I do well, some of what I used to do better, some of what I'm trying to return to in my game, a conversation around uh, strengths versus weaknesses. Um, which of those topics is, is speaking you, to you to, to start off with first? Well, I guess the 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 first thing I want to kind of discuss is, you know, I think we have a lot of similarities in, in how we we look at the game and, and how we we experience the game, but but also we have some significant differences. Which is, you know, you grew up playing hockey at a high level, I didn't because you know my parents are immigrants to Canada. I I didn't grow up with the game necessarily. I started skating uh, around seven years old, which is not late by any means, but not as early as. You know, most players who who make it to the top of of the game. And yeah, you're six and a half years behind most GTHL players. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> I I played high school varsity in Montreal. I uh, I think one of my teammates at all of my years of hockey made it to the queue. Another one played minor pro in France. A couple played college hockey, but so you know, I did play, but not at the level that certainly you and, and our other you know colleagues did. Um, but at the same time, I think from an early age, it's kind of made me a, kind of a, a seeker or a searcher like, like you are. Um, you know, it's, it's made me care about whether it's equipment, whether it's training, whether it's technique, whether it's tactics. So, you know, I just feel really fortunate to be able to, to kind of work, you know, with high-level athletes now and, and have these conversations with them and help them find these competitive advantages. So uh, really psyched to have a conversation with you on, on all those topics today. I do too. And, and, and one of the things I think I admire about you is you have experience with coaches who view development from an architecture standpoint, right? There's bits and pieces you have the raw material of the player. If we can add A, B, and C, maybe they'll be able to do this on the ice. But you also understand sort of like a organic or natural growth model where uh, the, the player already has a lot of this inside of them and why aren't they expressing it more commonly? And I think you recognize the cost of muddying the waters of the subconscious mind, which is what you're seeing on ice, right? Like it's, it's very easy coaches will joke, it's very easy to press pause when it comes, you know, video time. But the sensation as a player when a pass is coming to me, is it coming in too hot? Is it a little wobbly? Uh, was there a stick in the lane for a moment where I thought it might go uh, the other way for a breakaway? This all changes the sensation of how I approach this, you know, proposed one-timer, for example. Um, what is your relationship to some of what I just said? Like, how, how do you approach players as an architect now versus as a gardener it, this personality difference sort of determine how you approach it uh is it a little bit of your conditioning like uh in terms of what flavor of the week you're feeling like so uh you know b before we got on air we were talking about our time in toronto and i think if you look at a team that's really investing a lot in player development it's it's the maple leafs um and certainly you see a number of players who go into that system and they take to it really well. They're able to to find a new gear or, or find um, you know things that work for them, and, and you really see it translate on the ice. And then for other players, maybe it doesn't work 
as well. And it's not because of a lack of resources or a lack of attention or a lack of effort or a lack of information. It's just, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, architecture or gardening or, you know, one way that you can look at player development is it's either additive, which means that, you know, you're adding video analysis or, you know, uh, skating instruction or analytics or nutrition, or it's subtractive, which means that you're taking away some of the blockages uh, that maybe is preventing the player from being, you know, himself or herself, right? And, and, and I think different things will work for different people, but I think it's really important to recognize both sides, which is sometimes you can harm by adding and sometimes you can help by taking away. Yeah, I really like that. I think of it from a lens of, and it, and it really is something that I audit the coaches that I work with. Uh, if the conversation does not include uh, what not to do, either from a, a tactic standpoint or even from an energy standpoint, um, I will have trouble trusting that person because I, I think they're underestimating the effort and intensity with which I'm already approaching things. And, and I'm, I would say I'm giving 100% of myself every day. And so if you're adding to that, I'm certain uh, <laughs> my cup's overflowing uh, at some point, and, and we need we do need to subtract something uh, and simplify. And, and at large, I have found the shorter, more concise messaging uh, very helpful. And the other thing I think we're underestimating was you know you were with, the, with Toronto at the time. I had a, a brief experience with Sheldon Keith, but it was it was probably some of the purest hockey I've played in my entire career. And one of my greatest regrets was not being around the Leafs organization when he became a head coach. Um, it fit for whatever reason, his methodology, what he expected of his defensemen. I was able to do it within a Marley's mold. Um, how much of your work in development and in analytics and as an assistant coach is really keen, uh, it, it really needs uh, higher up the chain to be on board with the planet and to have an element of, of patience. Okay. So, so actually I'll, uh, I'll, I'll share a story working with Sheldon. So my last year in Toronto was 19, uh, sorry, it was 2019, uh, 20. Um, and so we started the year with Sheldon as the head coach of the Marlies. He obviously went up, uh, to the Leafs, uh, around halfway through the season, but, um, it's funny because, like, my experiences with Sheldon, uh, you know, I think yours are, I, I guess, overwhelmingly positive. But, you know, for, for me, like, I love working with Sheldon. I learned a ton from him. But also, you know, it wasn't always – we weren't always on the same page. And, and I think it's normal because, you know, when two people have opinions and different way of doing things, it, it's pretty normal. And – I just felt like that year with the Marlies, we we were very much in, in this mindset of like, we want to add things. So at the start of the year, uh, Sheldon had spent some time in the off season with Pete Carroll uh, and the Seattle Seahawks. And he saw how, you know, they played, whether it's basketball or ping pong, they had a lot of, um, they did a lot to kind of help the players be playful and feel joy and, and have a good environment. But the flip side of that was a lot of the things that he tried to bring over, it was putting a lot of strain on the staff. Because for instance, you know, as basically I, I was the video coach, so I, was in, I was in charge of the pre-scouts and uh, getting the meetings ready and all that stuff. And then now, twice a week, I had to organize a ping pong tournament and keep track of who was in the draw and, you know, make a PowerPoint of, you know, presenting the players and putting it up. Like, so we were kind of in the mindset of like adding a lot of things. And I felt like at a certain point, it kind of got in the way of our core competencies or, you know, the, the non-negotiables that, that we had to certainly that, that I had to perform, um, for the job, right? So, so I, I, I just felt like there was a like I was being spread out a little bit thin, and my attention wasn't as focused as it could have been on kind of those core tasks, and we had some friction based on that. And and, and I think it's an example of 
you know, we had a lot to work with, but, you know, the, the focus and our intention maybe wasn't as pure as, uh, as it was for you uh, when you, uh, when you play for him. Yeah. And I, I had joined a, a well-oiled machine. I think they had 60 wins that year. Um, you know, Willie Nylander was on that team, tremendous veteran players. Uh, I, I remember playing against them as a Hershey bear prior to the trade deadline, getting outshot like 52 to 17 or something. And then the next week I was on the other side of that out shooting every club. Um, and, and that was something I would say the Leafs organization when I was there did do very well. Use the term core competencies like Sheldon's philosophy very much molded around puck entries through the middle of the rank that extended. That, that was a concept off breakouts. That was a concept off neutral zone transition play. That was uh, a concept on ozone entry. Uh, and then how to play against tired players. Uh, the buy-in in terms of a lack of selfish, selfishness in the offensive zone, changing prior to needing to. Uh, allowing the puck to do uh, some things for you so that players were free uh, to change. And so if you did have to back check, you were fresh back checking fresh players. And that is what I would say was like really the the full entirety of, of how we played minus the defensive side, which we had a system, you know, not on similar to everybody else. I think you could only be so creative on the defensive side. A lot of it is effort and angling and do you have the horses? And then, with Babcock, it was it was similar. I got asked about him a lot because he's a, a pretty magnetic uh, name and and had done a lot in the game. And I had never played for somebody so extremely clear on what he valued. You could argue whether that was he was valuing the appropriate things or was coaching to the strong suits of the club uh, as as you know some of the the bigger offensive talents in particular, um, you know, were, were spreading their wings in the National Hockey League. But it was pretty much. Win each net front, exit through the middle on breakouts, play as fast as humanly possible in the neutral zone. Uh, there was an element of guessing or or whipping pucks if you had to. Uh, icing the puck was sort of a cost of doing business in playing this way. Uh, very fast on the wings with a uh, with a desire to stretch the zone as quickly as possible, um, and then a man at the net and whipping pucks to the blue paint and, and two D men sort of out. So in the offensive zone, you almost look like uh, five men on a, on a dice. So to, so to speak on a die and um, no face off plays like, you know, pretty much uh, exit out the weak side on, on D zone draws, two men to the net, shoot the puck immediately. And so anyway, it, it was very interesting to see how, the, the two coaches were different. I knew which one, you know, my strong suit sort of, uh, you know, played alongside. It, it is interesting to hear, you know, coaches' jobs is, is behind closed doors is to get their shit together and present a united and educated and confident front for the players. So it's interesting to hear a little bit about how the sausage is made because you know there's disagreement. You know there's, uh, you know, people who show up late, alarms get missed, communication uh, gets overextended. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear. Yeah, and 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 I just feel like, you know, in the AHL level or the or the NHL level, there, there's so much that goes into the work, and and I feel like sometimes like coaches they they leave a lot on the table because they're not able to kind of simplify a little bit or be a little bit more subtractive. Like one of the things that originally really drew me to working in hockey was. Obviously, I, I love the game uh, since since I've been young, and you know I, I I grew up playing the game. But the more I found myself advancing inside, kind of the, the the coaching end of the game, the less playful I found myself being. Right, and like I I look around at my colleagues, and they're spending a lot of time, whether looking at video or stats or putting practice plans together, and. You know, we, we don't have a ton of time to play or to fuel our bodies or to uh, experience different things and, you know, maybe pick up something new and, and experiment with that. But I, I think ultimately it's to our own detriment as coaches and teachers and mentors and, and whatever, because it's like we before we put our players in a box, we've put ourselves in a box like we, we never have any fun. And it's, you know, we hit the gym, we do video 
maybe we we grab a couple of beers and then we go to bed we do it all over again right like it, it's very like for me it's it's like not a very uh life affirming routine but it's the routine right we don't really have a choice there's 82 games or however many games there, there are in a season and if you don't do it that way then you'll find yourself out of a job well i think that's you, you mentioned the 82 versus the Pete Carroll methodology. They play 16, 17 games with bye weeks. Like, imagine if you had an entire week to prepare for every game, uh, the quality of preparation and the knowledge of the other club and the insight in your own team in terms of video you might be able to have. It's a totally different energy level. I mean, and you see it in the NFL. It's an explosive game environment. These players uh, are sprinting out of the tunnel. You've been in pro hockey. I've been in pro hockey. That is not the sentiment before most games. It is a, you're getting most of everyone's B game. Guys are tired. They're, you know, there's a lot of uh, Advil going around, a lot of icy hot, a lot of, you know, shitty uh, rink coffee. And uh, the ability to organize one's life and the other, so I very much believe there's like a physiological elements of this. Like, can you maximize sleep somehow? I know it's not ideal. Can you utilize uh, cold water exposure so you can have a dopaminergic effect on the brain? So there's, instead of relying on discipline, where there's an element of answering to what it is that you don't necessarily want to do in the short term, but in the long term, do want to have success at, so you you pony up and do it. There's a genuine desire to lean in. That that aggressive uh, mindset is is not an effort to put on, right? It's not a mask. And, and that's these are some tools that you can use. But I also think as I dive into mental performance more so now than I ever have is like this element of storytelling being incredibly powerful. And I, it started to click when I watched the last dance, it was something I was really good at as a kid uh, coming up through the ranks in hockey. And it's something I've reattached to now in my 10th year. That is a really explosive energy in a world of, um, staleness. Players are looking for a day off. And uh, to, to give an example, like when I was growing up, it wasn't the Chicago Fury versus Compuware. It was, I'm playing Jacob Truba tonight. It was, I'm playing Grant Weberman for the Windsor Spitfires. And I would think about all of the accolades that I wanted and how I wanted to beat his team and I wanted the reason that we wanted to be because I had I I outperformed their offensive defensemen. And you saw this with Jordan, like this this uh let a sleeping uh dog lie sort of sentiment. Um and it's something I found very energizing in a game where energy I think is a tremendous weapon. Yeah. Yeah so um you know, but before we, we we came on here, I talked a little bit about how my my philosophy or my perspective has shifted the longer I've worked in hockey. So as you mentioned, I got into the NHL as a writer for the Montreal Canadiens. So I, I was sitting up in the press box, traveling with the team, uh, writing kind of practice reports or post game reports, and that kind of gave me uh, some confidence that hey, like I, I can actually do. I can actually work in this game because there are opportunities for me and, and there there's some value that I can bring. So then, you know, going up, um, coming up through women's hockey on, on the video and analytics side at McGill and then getting hired to the Leafs. So I, I have this very kind of technical entry point to the game, but the more, I, I think the longer I work at this level, the more I value, as you said, storytelling and kind of that, that more right brain approach to the game to, to the point where I think now, um, you know, you see more and more teams using data and their decision making process or, you know, uh, integrating video and stats and, and other kind of technical tools. Uh, but for me, I, I feel like what if you're an AHL coach or, or you're an NHL coach, you know, finding ways to uh, be playful and become a better storyteller, it, it might be a, a richer opportunity than, you know, doing more video or, you know, learning more about stats or be, because like, you know, everybody's doing that now. 
Yeah, it's, at some point, it's like from a training modality, a lot of times the best opportunity in your training is some version of whatever it is you did not just do, right? And, and so this yin-yang uh, sort of, of pull. And, you know, when I, I think back to processes that coaches had as I grew up uh, in hockey, like I, I think Babcock had two things that if I were to ever coach, I would absolutely steal immediately, which was he would do it after wins. I would do it, I arguably, each and every practice was first drill, small ice game. Get guys engaged, get guys angling, get them stopping before they need to, get them in the zone. Uh, there's an element of starting on time with that. Like you, you knew as a player, if that's how you were starting practice, there wasn't going to be a toe dip sensation. Like you had to be ready to rock, you know, from the first drop, otherwise you might pull a groin or whatever. Um, and then just this like subconscious doesn't need to be talked about filtering in of the plays that we value as a team. And one of them was he would show uh, identity sort of clips on repeat on roll without narration, just in the locker room. It was just there. You'd watch it as you're taping your stick uh, and it became second nature. And there was this uh, consistent conversation around like, we can talk about plugging holes in the boat all we want, but those holes don't exist if we just do more of the good. If we're that much more clear on what it is that we need to do. And I think especially with the consistency with which pro hockey plays, that that is super effective. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned identity and I think identity is something that that's super important because ultimately I think we all have different motivations for playing the game or working the game uh, or watching the game or, or you name it, right? And, and especially if you're, if you're a player at the top level where it's incredibly competitive, your competitive advantage is you got to play in a way that represents who you are because you know nobody can do you better, right? And the farther you get away from that, the more you're kind of hamstringing yourself um, you know, and, and the less effective you, you tend to be. And, and, and I know that you wanted us to talk about your game and, you know, how you, you can be, you know, better and uh, how essentially you can use hockey as, as a vessel to kind of reach your, your long-term goals. So, so what does that look like for you? Like, like we're, you know, where, where to now, I guess. I mean, on, on, my end, I think that anytime you want to create personal lift, there needs to be uh, great fuel, right? And so I think I have that uh, in a way that I, I did in years prior. It just feels particularly exciting for me. Like it's exciting to be me coming to the rink every day. Um, I have such a greater understanding on a macro level of like, how does our team play? How do other teams play? Why does it work for us? Why does it work for them? On a micro standpoint, like what are the little skills involved? Uh, which of those can I consistently work on and at what cost? Because everything requires you know, some, effort, uh, some effort and some time. I can only work on so many things uh, during a week. You know, which ones are going to give me the greatest uh, bang for my buck? And I think it's an exciting time for me because I'm in the Bruins organization. Uh, we're one of the top teams in the American League. In the NHL, I was really inspired by even just training camp. I couldn't believe the degree of professionalism and intensity that Patrice Bergeron had and how approachable uh, he was and encouraging and sort of ho-hum, doing very difficult things, you know, let's, uh, and then going about his day as if this was just part of the job. Uh, really impressive. I, I think one of my favorite players in my entire career has always been Brad Marchand. He has this uh, uncanny ability to initiate where a lot of other players retaliate. He comes in with his plan and is somehow always one step ahead. There was this play recently, and I don't watch a ton of NHL hockey only because I'm playing all the time and my wife comes to a lot of my games. And for that reason, I'm just not going to make her watch more hockey, you know, at 7 p.m. And we, we have choices, but I watch as much as I can. And Brad Marchand was playing the Leafs, actually. I think it was on the road, and he had this backdoor chance, and he missed. He, he, he took a one-timer, and the, and the goalie glove saved it. 
and there was not a flinch on his face. There was not a shoulder shrug. He immediately went back to the bench, and there was this, there was this decision at a prior date to be unflappable in the face of missing that then had a chance to demonstrate itself on might be a big stage for me, for someone who's accomplished as much as he has. It's just another regular season, you know, game to some extent. And so like, what do I want to express? There is a day where I will not be a professional hockey player anymore. I want to know without a shadow of a doubt, the very best of me has left. I I have, I have left it out there for the hockey world to see what judgments they make. Um, that's theirs. They will value what they value. Uh, they will crunch the numbers as they see fit. They will create the design um, for their team. And I think like every player, there's uh, you, you latch on. We've talked about stories a couple times in this podcast. So every time I personally feel far from the NHL, I'll, I'll click on a game and I'll latch on to a player and I'll say, I see that right-handed shot defenseman. I think I can do his job. I think I can do it better. I've just got to be in the right spot at the right time and make it obvious that I'm the name that they pull out of the hat. And there's a list we could go through, you know, sub six defenders, guys that are two way guys, maybe not extremely loud on either special teams, but they're really effective five on five players. Not on, not unlike the role I played uh, in the NHL. Um, But I would say I'm much more, process oriented like i i am not attached to this the pass fail sentiment every day not in the nhl is not particularly a a failure in my eyes that's not to um accept the loss it is to encourage the process that is taking small but consistent steps towards something that's worth chasing so, so I'm looking at the notes that you sent me uh, yesterday, and in, in that intro segment, you were, you were, it says, um, you know, about about my career. It says, you know, that my career ended at, as recently as 1920 with the Toronto Marlies as an assistant, and and it kind of it caught me by surprise when I read it because. You know, since then, I, I haven't worked at the at the NHL or AHL levels. Um, I am now consulting for a, a team in, in the Swiss League, and I also work with high-end, you know, women's players uh, in the PHF. But certainly, there there is an element of like outside looking in. You know, sometimes you know I wonder, hey, you know, like am I am I good enough to work for an NHL team? Am I good enough to maybe one day be on an NHL or AHL bench? You know, maybe I'm I'm feeling a little bit left out or left behind, but. At the same time, I remember when I was in that world, at times I didn't feel like I was doing my best work. For whatever reason, I just felt like, you know, I was, you know, on someone else's program. I I wasn't really playing to my strength. I wasn't doing things that that were life-affirming or that really, you know, uh, solving the kind of problems that that I, I felt like I was able to solve. So... Um, and, and and there was this one moment, kind of in, in that nineteen twenty season, as we were going, to, you know, toward that COVID uh, lockdown, and we weren't sure what was going to happen. We were kind of concerned, like, what happens if I if I catch this disease on the road somewhere? Like, am I even going to survive? And I remember having a thought that, you know. If if my life were to end today or next week or next month, like how would I feel about my journey and and you know would I have done everything that I wanted to? And, and the answer, of course, is no. But that COVID lockdown really kind of crystallized certain things in my mind, and I feel like now, even if I'm you know quote unquote not working, you know at the highest level. I'm doing a lot of the projects that I always saw myself doing and you know whether it's writing whether it's sharing knowledge with players at different levels whether it's you know helping minor hockey players in their journey toward major junior and eventually you know the pro ranks um it, in many ways like kind of being quote unquote outside the game is has helped me elevate and and, 
and, and maybe like it's kind of what what you're uh, what you were talking about as well, which is you know like what what is the difference of you know playing let's say 500 versus 600 NHL games or a thousand or two thousand, right? It's there at some point that comes to an end, and, and maybe you know people will judge you based on a number of games and points and, and so on and so forth, but ultimately there there are things that are more important than that. Yeah, I think that's, I, I looked over my notes too, and I, I, I did mean to write career with the Leafs, so I, I uh, did not mean to uh, write you off, but I think it's an interesting talking point. An advantage I think you have as a hockey consultant outside of an organization is the organization selects the coaches, and the players kind of come in drafted um, for the most part, and sort of, uh, we don't necessarily get a choice, right, on, on who our coaches are uh, to some extent. If you're a really high-end player and you can pick where you want to play, then maybe, or if you can have some influence with the GM, then maybe. Um, but I think there's an in, inherent question that I've had really good coaches actually ask me, and I think it really sets the table for learning and a, a leaning in uh, to the process, this sort of like a more fatigue, like, like, this is happening for me, sort of reframing. And that is, um, like, are you willing to be coached today? I think that is an implicit question that's answered when a player approaches you as a hockey consultant outside of their normal staff. That creates, I think, such an explosive uh, environment for learning. And I, I think it really establishes the trust and, and something that I think, you've talked about the challenges coaches face during a regular season, You've uh, discussed, we, we both have acknowledged some of the challenges that face players and, and we've set this uh, goal of, of how can we be playful or fresh. And what, and what we mean by that is not like playful and light, right? So I have a son, uh, you're an expecting uh, father. Like when this kid plays, it is incredibly intense, right? He, he is unbearably frustrated when he cannot get the cap off the water bottle, right? And that, that's sort of the, the way that I play now. Like I, I, I get angry. I get emotionally invested. Uh, I'll be frustrated if things aren't going well. I'll be very happy just like he will if he does get the cap off the water bottle. But there's a level of um, a going into the competitive environment, much more aware of like how I want to show up, how I want to be. Uh, I, I've done a lot of work to regulate my nervous system. I've done a lot of work to understand and, and feel which thoughts serve me, which ones are just concerned for my well-being and, and are sort of a part of me from my younger days and, and don't necessarily serve me in this moment. I'm a, I'm a lot more aware of the ride that is playing pro hockey versus when I was younger, I, I very much was on the ride, uh, riding those highs and lows without a degree of being able to witness the whole thing. Um, for what it is. And that's what I think I crave is I, I've been at the highest level. I'm still at a very high level. The American League is a competitive league. You've, you've watched it. It's, it's tremendously better than when I came uh, into pro hockey in my younger days. Like the average quality of forward on your third and fourth lines, the average depth defenseman four through six is much higher uh, quality than when I first came in uh, to the league now uh, 10 years ago. But like I would like a second go. Who wouldn't, right? Like if, if we were to all, going back to your you know, COVID example, like if, if hypothetically we were to, heaven forbid, something happened to us, if we were allowed sort of like a get out of jail free card and you get a, you get a do-over, we would take that. And, and we would approach things uh, a second time differently. And that's what I think I want is the opportunity to express that. I've gone back, I've learned, I've eaten my humble pie. Um, I enjoy the game more now than I ever have. It, it, it stresses me out so much more than it did, but in a way that's growthful, not a way that's eating me alive, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so you, you, you mentioned in, in the notes that you wanted to talk about you know how you can how you can play better and how you can find a new level. And, and there's one exercise I really like. I really like to do with the players that I work with, and also their parents, which is 
we look at things on a much longer time scale than you would expect. So an example is uh, I work with a number of, of 16-year-old players who are going into major junior and you know the parents are very anxious. Are they going to get drafted by a good team? Are they going to have playing opportunities? Are they going to be in an organization where they're going to be respected and valued and, and, and coached correctly? And But the, the one thing that I, that I always find helpful when it comes to uh, putting these anxieties in perspective is uh, basically their goal is not to be the best major junior player. Their, their goal is to be the best player, you know, certainly at, at 20, but also 22, 25, 30, 35, right? Like uh, we, we can probably name tons and tons of players who didn't have great junior careers, but who've had a, a incredibly successful pro careers because they were late bloomers, because, you know, they took their time and figure things out later, because they didn't rush things, because, um, you know, they, they just focused on, on being the best version of themselves and then the rest kind of fell into place later. So, you know, you're 28 years old now. So what would Connor Carrick look like as a player and as a person if he were still playing at a very high level of pro hockey at age 38, what, what would that look like? What would that feel like? What would you be doing? I think that uh, that's another leverage point that you have as an individual consultant is to play with time horizons. And I've seen this on your Twitter, and I think it's a, a very rich question to ask. And it, and it really it raises the level of work ethic and attention I'm, I'm prepared to bring in the short term. And it's very humbling in terms of the, the, the length of that goal, right? And you start to realize like, okay, you know, I think Jack's right. Like I've been approaching this from a, a day-to-day or a year-to-year or, you know, to go back to the junior player, like I've got to have a big summer. I've got to put weight on to, okay, I actually have a lot of things that are tremendously worthy of my time. Um, and all of them are going to require a, a healthy amount of my work ethic, but I'm, I'm up to the task. I, th- I think it's a, because it's worth it, I'm up to the task. I think um, the skating at the defense position, you are an element of, there's an element of firefighting to your game. You have to be everywhere that you're supposed to be. And then a couple times a night, you're supposed to either cover for a mistake you've made or something that someone else has made and be able to skate at a tremendous level. So I, I think that from a physicality standpoint, the things that support that eating well, sleeping well, training hard, uh, the, the technical side, um, that's got to be there. I think uh, really understanding the different angles that are key to my game, like where on the ice are home for me. A couple of plays I think of is, is Patrice Bergeron just kind of uh, – chasing a play up the rank, like supporting his winger maybe. There's been a turnover. He's on two skates. He's on two hands, and he, and he comes in like a, like a falcon you know, to his left, and he's got this big stinging poke check to stab a puck up a wall or break up a play. He does it in the D zone. He does it in the neutral zone. He does it as an F3. That's something that, as a D-man, there's a couple of those, right? Being on the blue line, getting off, getting into the neutral zone, uh, being able to close you know, on my side of the rink. Or if there's been a cross ice pass, being able to you know come up uh, and defend the middle lane drive, so that some of those are, are sweet spots. No, getting clearer and clearer and clearer on those sweet spots as a DMM. And then um, I think the offensive side. I think your your puck skills are something that don't necessarily leave you as you get older. You still saw Zetterberg have tremendous puck skills as he gets older. Uh, I, I've worked with Adam Oates. Yeah, I don't know how old the guy is, but he's still got better hands than half the guys in the National Hockey League. Like, it's something that you can continue to refine, um, particularly with one carrot that I've zoned in on in my career, and that is uh, the ability to take scoring shots, either with the sifter or particularly the one-timer. I think it's a great shot. I think it, it opens up so many doors to offensive scoring. And it's something that is such an asset to the guys that have it at a high level and understand how they can get that shot off. You know, Pasternak's got his dot. Ovechkin's got his dot. Bergeron has his like little skid into middle ice where, you know, he receives a, a middle ice pop, either five on five or four on four. Um, 
I think that's something that as I age, I can still have over guys I play against. So, so here are a few ideas that I have. You know, wh- when I'm trying to envision Connor Carrick playing NHL hockey at age 38. So the first thing is uh, any sort of change of direction. So whether it's a forward to backward pivot, whether it's, uh, you know, you're going from net front to the corner to retrieve a puck, uh, that's got to be on point. Because one mm-hmm. way for you or for for any 38-year-old to still play the game at a high enough pace is to only take two steps when other players are taking three or four steps. So for me, that you know, if you want to play in the NHL at 38, that's a non-negotiable. You got to find ways to get from A to B in you know one or two fewer steps than uh, a younger, less experienced player. The uh, the the other thing is. You know, obviously at 38, I, I don't anticipate anybody getting faster from from 28 to 38 in terms of you know pure straight line speed. So then, you know, how can you get better at leveraging your teammate speed? So it could be you know you're playing with a D partner who skates like Devon Taves or Kale McCarr. So how can you set up your puck plays and your reads so that maybe? You know, if you're not able to force a stop in the D zone, you're actually hurting the puck carrier toward your partner, and and, and then your partner is going to have that jump to to kill that play. Um, maybe it's just getting the puck off the wall and bumping it five to ten feet so that you know your teammate can skate onto it, so that you don't have to you don't have to wheel the puck every time. Um, and then the third thing is. You know, being present in the middle of the ice, and, and you mentioned you know your shot being a strength, uh, whether it's a sifter, but uh, you know, can you find ways to get you know inside dots and almost play like a center or a high F three, right, in, in spots, so that you can get into those kind of that high ice. If the play works out, you get a shot. That's a good quality shot. If it doesn't work out, you're gapped up. You can kill that exit right away. So it, it's for, for me, it, it's all about being efficient in your the, the direction changes, uh, leveraging speed when maybe the speed isn't yours anymore, but it's your teammates. So leveraging their speed, but also finding ways to kind of get at that middle of the ice and then have the play run through you. Because basically, you know, like any player who's 38 either you can try to go faster or you can get other people around you to slow down and play at your speed. And, and ultimately, I think uh, whether it's a, it's a Nick Backstrom or you know, uh, an Igor Larionov or you, know, you name it, the players who are still effective into their late 30s, uh, they find ways to slow things down when it, it helps them. But otherwise, you know, they still find ways to be able to keep up. Yeah, I think of... Um... This, this ability to sort of have uh, like glue on your stick. You, you just have this settling of pace of play. I think Nick Backstrom's the ultimate. I would go, I had the luxury of playing with him. And uh, it, it seemed like every six weeks in practice, he would finally have something to hit his skate that he wouldn't corral. You know, Mark Shifley uh, is a player like this. And, and I also want to highlight just the, the pace and athleticism of the game of hockey. It is amazing, Jack. Like when I grew up, the two skates on the ice, the the angling, the Nick Lidstrom type, the Sergey Gonchar type, the Andre Markov type, kind of that moxie quarterback type uh, defenseman ha- has sort of gone away a bit, at least in terms of uh, you know conversation regarding the Norris. Like it 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 is a sprinting game nowadays. Uh, the Iskinens, the Macars, uh, Quinn Hughes. I'm I'm gonna forget guys, but the uh, elasticity at the defense position particularly has picked up and it's something I've 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 I love to watch it's an, it's incredible to watch uh the best of the best be able to navigate um themselves on ice and in and, and in gravity that way what like what do you make of Chris Tanev like do you remember instances of playing against him cuz he's a guy who you know he he's been banged up and, and maybe he's not as good a mover as he used to be a decade ago. But but he's he, it's it seems like he still finds ways, right? Like Quinn Hughes hasn't been as good a D since 
uh, Tan has left Vancouver. Well, and and he's uh, Calgary plays a lot of. I don't watch the West a lot just with the time change, but they play a lot of man on man too, don't they? Uh, I understand in their def- in their in their D zone. Yeah, and and like the, their D's pinch and their D's are like they're simple, but they're they're involved. And that's what I would say is something as a, a defenseman of his size, I find impressive because I think you can learn kind of a zone defense uh, that a lot of teams play and uh, be really crafty with your momentum and your weight to, you know, pin guys as they, as they kind of unknowingly skate near your area under pressure. And then you're that settling force. Um, but to have to chase certain guys, you know, every club's got a couple of water bugs now that are particularly, uh, keen on you know cutbacks. Every forward in the league now works on cutbacks. I'm I'm looking at like your Kerfoots, your Nylanders, uh I think Mason Jost, uh, JT Comfort, guys that um, uh, Tanev's brother uh, tend to play like that, right? The, this this high energy. There, there's a degree of unpredictability to their game offensively on purpose. Um, I like Tanev. He was a player that I saw up close in Seattle during their preseason a couple times and, and was impressed. I didn't realize his, I think similar to what you were mentioning earlier, just the ability to uh, control pace. Like I didn't understand his puck skills were that good. Every puck play that he made seemed to make his guys on the ice, his teammates, life a lot easier. They weren't bouncing. They weren't telegraphed. Um, they were on time, and he was just consistently sort of on this rhythm where he was improving the lie to use a golf analogy. He was improving the lie for the next, for the next player. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you want to be uh, an NHL defenseman in, in the back half of your thirties, like, like I feel like that that's the model, right? Like it's gotta be not so much what you do, but the effect that it has on your teammates. I like that. I also think this is something, and we've, we've talked about, uh, in my notes, I, I wanted to talk about the league at large because I think that's a great asset you have is you're not necessarily obsessing over your own club, right? You're able to kind of uh, meander and, and put different games on TV and study different guys and have different projects instead of the same guys being your responsibility every day. Um, I, I really appreciate it within the league where you see examples of lines growing together and D pairs growing together and teams growing together like with their certain reads. And they are plays in which other teams know that they're coming, they're studying them, and for whatever reason, when it comes game time, they're able to connect on the same sensation and deceive the other club. You know, a, a play that comes to mind is the Brad Marchand um, outside-in face-off play. A lot of clubs know he does it. He does it off a lot of neutral zone plays. For whatever reason, he gets his, he gets his looks. He, he's just He's got that... Uh, edge work down the right defenseman has that sort of like outside look where they're they're going to throw it to the middle um, and it, it's a play it's a it's a play that they discuss obviously as a team and 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 he's taken ownership of other some examples throughout the league I think uh, uh, Luke Shen and Quinn Hughes has been one you mentioned Tanev maybe being even a better option who are some lines and some some teams that have executed things over the course of uh you know last few seasons in the nhl that's really caught your eye it's it, it's been a couple of years now but but i i still marvel at how good a fit uh joe pavelski is with Bupe hints and jason robertson and, and now we see robertson kind of really taking a step and i think gaining the reputation of being an elite player but even two or three years ago when robertson was just starting out and hints was you know, seen as a guy who's really fast, but who, who's kind of maybe a little bit flaky in, in terms of his decision making. And, and Pavelski, you know, older guy, slowing down. But they they complement each other so well because, again, like you you see uh, you see how Pavelski likes to play the game at a certain speed. You see how Hintz likes to play at the game at a much higher speed. But then Robertson's able, like he's almost like the clutch on that on that line, who's able to kind of go from, you know getting off the wall and getting into Pavelski's middle support, all of a sudden they pop the puck to Hins, who's built up ahead of steam, and now he's on, he's on a breakaway. So it's that variety of speed and you know the, the, the interplay between 
east west and north south that's really cool on that line because you see like all three guys like they they have their own thing and they have their own way of playing the game but then instead of creating conflict you actually have this really rich kind of symphonic game right i love that yeah and and when you it is interesting like like pavelski has this uh ability to attract pucks. He has a magnetic quality when he's on the rink in terms of being at the right pace and at the right layer to settle things down in the middle of the ice. And it it really is a a green light to Arupe Hens to eye up mismatches, to see D-men that may be cheating on their gap uh, one way or the other. Either they've completely backed off and are, are anticipating the speed or they're doing what most clubs, you know, discuss, which is trying to get close to people and, and he can just, um, you know, kind of flip it in his uh, to to his strength and try and get behind him, and either beats a D man clean or he's pulling up, finding a Robertson who's kind of in that middle layer ahead of Pavelski but behind Hints, uh, and he's you know scoring daggers or he's uh, you know picking up loose change and making a crafty um, scoring play. You know, a- after uh, the the Rupe Hints you know sort of uh, shot and, and speed play. I like yeah. them too. Yeah, and I like and- them too. And I think like that that kind of chemistry or that recipe, it's we make it more difficult than it should be to duplicate because if you're a coach who's focused on what players can't do, right? Like if if you have Pavelski and you're always telling him that he's slow, that that he he can't carry the puck or he can't, you know, do certain things, and then you're looking at Hints, who's really fast, but then you know sometimes he'll he'll make these strange reads or he'll swing away from the puck, and then you look at Robertson, who's not naturally a burner either, and maybe he he could shoot the puck a little bit more. But you see how you, you know with the same players you can actually ruin them by focusing too much on their weaknesses instead of just kind of letting them cook, but with partners that that are complementary. Yeah, and I I agree with you in terms of honing in on like strengths that you you can bring into certain guys games um you think of the pace of the nhl everyone's trying to play faster and then you see the effectiveness of a, of a pavelski so i think you're cheating a lot of young centers not helping them understand where it's okay to be very under control uh here you have this and you have a ton of video evidence of a similar player um, being able to slow things down and have tremendous uh, effect on the game. Another thing I, I've heard about Joe Pavelski that I imagine really has helped that uh, Dallas team, and particularly his line, is just his, his he, he's very uh, intense about his preparation. Um, I've heard rumors about his notebook of where he's scored every goal and getting back to what we talked about, like kind of honing in on the sweet spots for myself as a defenseman. He has sort of uh, like hot spots for himself. And this is something that's become common in analytics, but I think he does his, his own of sort of like where he's scored against certain clubs. Uh, understanding, I mean, he's got, you know, I don't know how many uh, NHL games played now, but it's a lot. Understanding like the different D zones, what plays are available because of one, uh, where he can score against uh, on a different one. Um, and just empowering his line mates to start to do the same. There was a, a player I play with and I, I try to be that, right? I'm in the American League. A lot of guys are younger than me. I've I've got you know a lot of games played in pro hockey compared to some of the younger players. And he was saying, "Man, I just feel so much calmer on the power play after, like right right before the faceoff. You kind of tell me what you're going to do, and whether I'm involved or not. Like I, I just feel like I've bookmarked. I, I I've been able to exit." the flow of the game as it was going. And I've been able to enter into this really important part of the game that I know is now the next two minutes of the power play uh, for us. And and it has to do with that communication style. And I imagine someone, you know, like uh, Joe is, is even further down the spectrum in terms of uh, his, his ability to lead and clarify and simplify the game for guys and, and make them aware of their assets on a nightly basis and to, to play to those yeah and so if i were to bring up something that's maybe uh more relatable for you as a defenseman 
you know, as much as that top Dallas line is kind of the the gold standard right now in terms of chemistry for forwards, I you know I I want to talk about Devon Taves and Kale McCarr as a D pair because I think for you know as long as you know we've grown up, we've kind of seen the, this classic example of you want to pair a, a smaller puck mover with a bigger stay at home guy, right? But if you look at how how NHL teams, uh, how the better NHL teams, at least they play now, it's not really like that anymore. Like on a top pair, you want you you need two guys who can really skate. You need two guys that can both move the puck, and maybe one of them is more offensive minded, but at least the other one is able to skate the rink and back you up. And like the biggest tactical. Uh, difference I see in the game now compared to even five years ago, you know, when we were both in Toronto is it now it seems like every single team values that weak side D being involved on both sides of the puck. Like it used to be where, you know, teams would play a one, two, two, and then that weak side D, his only job is to kind of be on an island and go back and retrieve the puck if there's a hard rim. But now you see that weak side D, you know, coming up tight to his partner, they'll get hip to hip, and then they'll they'll surf on that puck carrier to deny the um, to deny the entry. Or on the breakout, that weak side D is leaving early and almost playing like a center so that he can get the puck on a change of side near the middle of the ice. Uh, like that's a huge thing because now you, you can't have a guy who's just stays at home and is big and can't really skate and you know is super simple with the puck because uh now kind of you have this kind of dividing line between the two partners that hurts you on both sides of the puck right if if you're uh the smaller kind of puck moving guy and you know that your partner is never going to be an out for you in the middle of the rink then you're going to get hit more because you have fewer options yeah. Yeah. if you're if you're the the, the bigger guy uh, you know, and you make a defensive stop, but you can't get the puck off the wall to your partner again. Uh, that means that the next play is going to be a change of side, and then your smaller partner has to defend maybe man on man, and he's going to get beat off the wall. And now you look stupid because you're flat footed in the middle, uh, taking on a two on one kind of close to the net. So, um, again, I think you know, if we're talking about big tactical shifts in the game, it's you know, if you're the weak side D, you might be the person who's farthest away from from the puck. But now you always have to be engaged. You always have to make a decision of like, do I get up tight to my partner, or do I turn and go and pick up a puck, or do I uh, build speed and and get into space for a change of side? Like, you know, before you can kind of just wait and see if you're the weak side D. But now you don't have that luxury anymore. I think one of my favorite examples when they really started to do it, um, other NHL clubs, have you've, as you mentioned, have, have started to add this into their game. But I think Carolina, the Hurricanes under Rod Brindamore were a blast to watch at first. Like a lot of teams would do that D to D. The other club would do a one, two, two. So, you know, if you're weak side D, the D that made the initial pass is sort of out of the play now. It is. If you do the math, it's essentially four on five for the team that has the puck because you've eliminated that guy's an option and you have one guy trying to angle and four guys trying to stop your three forwards, right? That's kind of the, the art and science of the one, two, two. And Carolina would just do this like D to D. They wouldn't hinge that puck receiving D uh, of, of the first pass would climb above F1 and he'd hit the other D man flying down the other dot lane uh, with a full tank of speed. And he would go alongside the forward who swung away or the center away. And they'd be entering, um, Let's say it's Brett Pesci, right shot to Jacob Slavin, left shot. Slavin climbs above F1, pass it back to Pesci. He's entering in with the right winger or the center who swung away against, you know, sort of the last E-men back. And it was uh, it was one of my favorite things to watch. Or or I'm forgetting the playoff series, but when they did the D down the wall, and instead of trying to hit a center or a, a winger at the net, they sent both D-men. They sent the, 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 their right shot D-men to the back post and, and threw a D to D. Uh, at the hash mark pass happen. And I was like, that play is sick. That, I'm going to see that one again. Someone's going to steal that, I hope. And uh, it was fun hockey to watch. Mm-hmm. So, so, I, so I think that that's only going to become more widespread. And then eventually, and I'm talking like maybe four or five years from now, but maybe there's going to be a renewed emphasis on Ds who can make stops one-on-one 
and Ds who can really shoot the puck because, you know, defensively, uh, you have way more movement, so it's going to be difficult to really slow the play down and play more of a zone. And then offensively, uh, for instance, like you see Florida this year, like look up the shooting percentage of the Ds playing for Florida. Like they're getting tons yeah, of shots, but they're they're not real good at at scoring on them. Like Ekblad's got a bomb, obviously, but if you look at the rest of their Ds, they're they're not really, you know, they're they're not really great shooters. And what you find is, as a team, the more you get your defensemen activated and involved uh, in the ozone if they can't finish you're leaving goals on the table so so there, there might be more of an emphasis also on on just finding those d's who can really shoot the puck and, and maybe five years from now that that's going to be a big uh a big upside for you relative to, to other d's that you're going to be competing for spots against well, I think that brings us full circle to some of the equipment sweet spot, uh, like spending the time, right, as a, as a defenseman, there's really not a lot of time in a team-structured practice to focus on, let's say, top of circles down scoring opportunities, whether either off, off broken plays or like fourth man's ice. And then you look at a guy like a, a, a Josh Morrissey or an Adam Fox, like a lot of guys get into the space that these two get to, but the puck needs to go where it needs to go to beat the goalie. And it's it's not by mistake that these guys put the numbers up that they do. Um, and, and and so it's like those values, those skills matter. And uh, I'd like to think, you know, from a, a, a team coaching standpoint, from a, a scouting standpoint, from an analytics standpoint, like this is something we can spend time with. This is something we can look for in the free agency market. Um one of my favorite examples would be uh, Mark Giordano. When I was in Seattle uh, for the brief time that I was, there was a difference. Like you would see every coach draws it up. I want our weak side demon in the ice. It's a four on three league now. I want our fourth guy up. A lot of demon will run that route because the coach drew it up. Mark Giordano ran that route to score. Like he, he was playing for keeps. He was excited to be in that ice. He didn't feel nervous about it. He uh, was really good at corralling pucks that were you know, meant for him. He was kind of good at like adjusting his hands and feet to corral pucks that had gotten knocked down, but were still in his vicinity. And, you know, definitely an older player who's been extremely effective uh, despite his, his best skating days, you know, kind of being behind him. Oldest D in the NHL, if, if memory serves. And what a, what an awesome guy too. He's just, uh, I, I really um, was rooting for him in Seattle, and and even since he's gone to Toronto, he's been a guy that, um, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to play as long as he is uh, currently, I, I've thought about that. Like that's a guy who's I'd like to do my job that way. I know I know no one can be me better than me, but there's definitely some some uh, energy and and some tricks of the trade to to learn from this guy, and and uh, he's been a great fit for the Leafs, and and uh, I've enjoyed watching him. Yeah, so so may, maybe that that's the best way to end the discussion. Just you know, you may not play like Mark Giordano when you're 38 or 39, but you know, to do things at that level, you, you got to be the best version of yourself, and and you got to do th- do things a certain way, and 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 to be true to that. I appreciate that. I I, I appreciate your time today, Jack. I, I do think that's a good spot to stop for today. Um, for listeners that want to get a hold of you, either uh, on social media or personally uh, to consult about their own, own game, uh, how can they find you? What are some, some of your uh, most accessible points on the web? So the, the best way to uh, follow what I'm doing is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. Uh, if you don't use Twitter, you can always Google. Um, I write a free uh, newsletter called the, the Hockey Tactics Newsletter. So uh, it's on Substack. You can just Google that. Um, I, I try to publish a few things every week about whether it's tactics or player development or maybe my experiences as a coach. Um, lots of uh, industry folks, whether player, coaches, uh, scouts, uh, they subscribe to it. I, I think you'll get a lot of value to it, whether you're a free subscriber or you upgrade to one of the, the premium kind of paid tiers. Yeah. I've always, I've always marveled at your content pace and uh, your sub stack's extremely well done. Um, 
you sent me some of uh, your initial works and I signed up. So Jack, I, I appreciate your time uh, for all the hockey parents and players and parents. I, I really, uh, I know I personally have learned a lot from Jack. Um, and uh, I think you'd be, you'd be better off to try and do the same yourself. So I appreciate your time today. And uh, it was fun. It was fun reminiscing over some of uh, the Toronto days and, and learning a little bit of what you're up to now, Jack. All right. Well, all the best to you, Connor. And uh, don't be a stranger. Let me know if, if there's anything that, that you want to talk about. I'm, I'm always here. Thank you. Thank you.